This evening, for our reading of Scripture, we turn to Ephesians chapter 6, the last chapter of that grand and glorious book on the church and the last of the practical instruction on the Christian life, and we'll read that entire chapter. Ephesians 6, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And now what follows from 5 through 9 is our text. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart with good will doing service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters, do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven." neither is there respect of persons with him. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that ye may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that ye also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, 
a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord shall make known to you all things, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that ye might know our affairs, and that he might comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all them that love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. As we mentioned, we're going to consider verses 5 through 9, which begins with, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, and ends with these words, And ye masters, do the same things unto them. This Word of God, beloved, is a continuation of the Apostles' treatment of the submission that's required of all Christians in their various relationships in this life. This section began generally in chapter 5, with these words, be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And interestingly then, as followers of God, part, a great part of our life is submission. And since verse 21 of that chapter, that's been the subject. Submitting first of all one to another, then submission when regard to the family and with regard to marriage. And in there he also turns to speak to the husband who is given authority in the marriage. Then he's going to continue with four verses with regard to submission of children to parents. And here too he takes the opportunity to turn to the fathers and give them admonition. That word we're going to skip here for a while. I would like to save that passage for a baptism uh, text. And now he turns really to speak of submission in the workplace. He refers, of course, to servants and masters, but the application today is to employees and to employers. But it's good for us to begin by remembering that what the Apostle requires in here and what he sets forth is simply, in the first place, part of godly Christian behavior. It's part of being a follower of God, part of being a dear child of God. That there's a relationship, therefore, between the earthly work and labor, our earthly physical relations, and our spiritual relations. We saw that on prayer day. We spoke about that on prayer day. Here we see it again. There is a relationship between us and God. We are His children. He is our master. He is our authority. And therefore, submission is also required in the earthly realm and sphere. There are earthly masters. There are earthly lords. 
And they are made that by our Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore to be a Christian does not free one from that earthly relationship, but rather gives one strength and obligation to live in submission. So now we consider that with regard to the workplace. We may consider this to be rather timely instruction, even though we do not live in an era of slaves and masters. Nevertheless, what is said here applies to the same relationships of employers and employees. Timely instruction, because this occupies a great deal of our life. Certainly, for those who are married, marriage occupies and is a relationship that takes a great part of our life and is important. We have the same thing with children and parents. A great part of our life is living in a relationship with our parents. Well, so also is the workplace relationship. An important instruction, too, because there are always temptations. Part of our sin, and part of the sin of the human race, is to rebel against authority. Man, by nature, is a rebel. He is disobedient, not respecting the authority, not reverencing his Lord in heaven. He, of course, will not recognize any Lord on earth either. And that includes then in the workplace. And since we are sinners, that same sin is in our own hearts, making this Word of God important. Now exactly one thing is stressed that brings to bear the relationship between the spiritual and the earthly is something that we may not consider on the face of it which is, when we serve our master, and when we as masters serve the slaves who labor under us, we are actually serving Christ. What this text brings home to bear is something that we need to remember. We think we serve Christ, for example, in the church, in the sphere of the church. Perhaps we could see also how we serve Christ in our marriages and in our families. But the workplace? How do we serve Christ there? Well, perhaps by engaging in some form of worship while we're at the workplace and perhaps living a certain way in the work. But consider this passage, which says, in the workplace is where we serve Christ. So we'll consider that, serving Christ in the workplace, and we'll notice, first of all, the behavior he requires of us, the second, the reason he gives for that behavior, and then thirdly, the promise that he makes with regard to this behavior. The behavior that Christ requires of Christians in the workplace can be simply stated as serving one's master as a slave, to do the work of a slave with regard to one's master. And that requirement, that behavior of our Lord Jesus Christ applies whether we are actually in bondage to a master who owns us 
as was the case in the day of the Apostle Paul, or whether we are being paid for our labors in an employee-employer relationship. We may read the text that way, actually. Slaves, not servants, but slaves, that's the word. Slaves, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. That's the behavior that God requires of us in the workplace as slaves and we're going to see even as masters to a very real extent. That this is the emphasis is indeed evident from the word slaves that's used as well as the word master. The word master there is actually a word that we know in Greek and English. It's the word despot. Despot. Now that word has an unsavory flavor today because it's a word that refers to the absolute authority that a master has over a slave. He has absolute authority, the authority of one who owns, who possesses even that individual person or human being. And it has unsavory connotations, of course, because many masters abuse that authority over the slave. Regardless of what one thinks of the institution of slavery, what's interesting is that this passage sets forth what it ought to be and shows sin both on the part of the slave and the master, the despot, in that relationship. But the point is, that is how God acts, expects us to behave in the workplace. Christ says to us, in your work and in your labor, consider yourself to be a slave who is under the absolute rule and control of a master. That this is the emphasis is brought out when you see that the purpose of a slave is to give himself, to give his labor, to give his work, to give his gifts, to give his abilities for the sole benefit of the despot, of the master, the Lord for whom he works, the one who owns him. That's evident when it says here, the apostle calls the work that they do service twice, six and seven, that's actually the word slavery. You have the word slave, and then you have the word slavery. The work that slaves do is slavery. But especially, it's work that is for the pleasure and desire of the master. That's evident when he goes on to say that slaves perform eye service as men-pleasers. You have to understand what the apostle is getting at in the first place. He's we talk about doing eye service as men-pleasers. We would be referring to somebody who always acts according to what people think. If you ask why they wear their hair this way or why they're buying that clothes and what enters in when they make this decision to buy this car and, and why are they involved in this activity or that, you could say, well, they're doing this to be men-pleasers. 
They're performing eye service as men pleasers. But here you have to understand in the context in which it's written, that's literally true of a slave. What a slave does is the service of whatever his master desires, whatever he sees, whatever he wants. You operate at his pleasure. A slave literally does eye service as a man-pleaser. That's his one job and his one duty in life. What he thinks doesn't enter into it. What he wants isn't to be considered. Only what the Master wants and what the Master desires. And this all points to now what is required of the Christian This indeed, of course, was very important instruction in the Apostles' day. Secular history informs us that as much as one-third of the entire Roman population under Roman rule were slaves. One-third of the people were in that relationship in one way or another, and then consider all those who actually owned slaves One either had slaves or one was a slave. It involved virtually everybody in that economy except perhaps the very poor who could not afford slaves. And now it's obvious that what the Apostle says here refers even to Christian slaves and Christian Masters, that's evident when he calls them to not labor as other servants, but as the servants of Christ. He's speaking to those in the church at Ephesus who literally went to church as slaves, who could perhaps even be sitting in the pew, who could be reading this letter with their masters, or who had their masters read this letter to them who could have had Christian masters. And now even that is worth taking note of, that the apostle would dare to speak in this way regarding slaves and masters. Consider what others who claim to be Christians have said about this institution throughout time and history supposedly under the name of Christians, called upon slaves to run away from their masters, to rebel against their masters, called it an evil institution all by itself. So it's remarkable that the apostle does not. We'll say more on that in just a moment. But what we see here is that, in the first place, the behavior that Christ requires is this recognition of authority that the slave and consequently then the employee must regard his master as his master. And what does that mean? That one is master simply by virtue of a transaction? That one is master because of this or that legal deed? No. No. What the apostle is getting at is one recognizes that one is a master because God has made them such. 
Indeed, it may have occurred by illegal transaction. Indeed, it may have occurred even by force. It may have even occurred in a way that was not right, but was wrong. Nevertheless, God makes one the slave, and God makes one the master. And like all the other instances of submission that we have noted, fundamentally and basically all submission is simply this that one recognizes that another has legal and lawful authority over them and that authority comes from God Himself. God Himself. Then there is the obedience that follows from that. There is submission and then there is obedience. Slaves be obedient to them that are your masters. The negative side of that is that the slave may not engage in rebellion. He must resist the temptation to rebel, and to rebel especially by disobeying a lawful order from his master. Keep in mind, keep in mind that when the Apostle says this, that there could be many earthly human reasons for that slave to disregard that order, to live in rebellion. Indeed, reasons that continue to be given to urge rebellion. What has the Master done for you? The Master isn't paying you wages. You're just a slave. He's not supporting you financially. He gives you no personal time. He gives you no ability to acquire your own possessions, to live your own personal life. Don't you know that that's a crime? That that's a sin against humanity? That that may not be done? Not true. Not true at all. The Apostle doesn't even consider such things. Only that one is slave, God has made him such, and one is master, and negatively, therefore, there may be no rebellion, no reason for disobedience other than in the eyes of God. We must obey God rather than men applies to slaves too. But other than that, obey your masters. Positively, it means devote all your time and energy, all that you are as a being, all that you are as a person, all your gifts, all your abilities, anything that God has given you is for the sole devotion and the service of your master. It's not yours. It's not for you. It's not to be exercised on your behalf. That's what's all taught here. And the point is, this is what Christ requires of the Christian employee today. Now, of course, many in the church world object to this. They say the Apostle isn't talking about that at all. They understand the implication. That's why they say that. Not because the exegesis is so difficult, but they understand the implication of what the Apostle says, and so they object to the application of this to an economy that doesn't have slaves and masters. And they basically say, this doesn't apply. This only applies back in that day to that particular situation, and it says nothing about today. It has no relevance whatsoever 
unless you happen to be a slave. And we really object to that. You shouldn't be a slave. Again, not true. And it's not true exactly by the fact that the apostle references masters. And one need not actually own a slave to be a master. The Bible uses that word for all kinds of positions of authority. If you are given authority, you are given a position of being master and lord. Husbands are called lords. Fathers are masters of their children. Teachers are masters. It's really no different than the fifth commandment, which as we all know, speaks only of children and parents. Children, obey your parents. But going all the way back to when that commandment was given, the church has always known that applies to all authority, not just children and parents. No Christian in his right mind comes along and says, you know, the fifth commandment only applies to the family. It doesn't apply to your relationship to the state or any authority whatsoever, only to parents and children. No, in the same way, what the apostle says here applies to employees especially and employers. Principle here that just because the form of something changes doesn't mean that the principle changes. So the form, the economic form of a relationship changes. In our day, we don't have slavery. It's been largely banned in most Western civilizations. It's opposed. It's made criminal. There's a different form. There's still a form of authority, but it takes a different form where there's wages and there's payment. But the same thing holds true, too, with regard to the state. What the Bible says about your relationship to the state often isn't put in terms of a monarchy, where there's a king, where there's one ruler, a single governor, as was in the time of the nation of Israel for many, many years, as was in the case in the time of the Romans, and now it's a democracy. Does that change things? No. Nope, the principle still applies. You have to obey those who are your rulers, whether that be in the form of a democracy or whether that be in the form of a monarchy. doesn't change. So here, too, and this you understand is why the Protestant Reformed churches have always been opposed to labor unions and must maintain that position that organization of labor which urges rebellion, which uses rebellion to get its way, is unlawful. You can present all the arguments you want about the relationship between the master and the slave or the employer and the employee and point out all kinds of justification from an earthly viewpoint. The wages are too low. There's not enough financial incentive in the work. It's a dangerous place to work. All these things that are given, and they're all swept away by the fact that the apostle urges even the slave who makes no wages and the slave who gives himself entirely to the master even as a possession and says, obey, slaves, your masters. So it certainly applies to us today. Now, there's not the only behavior that the apostle enjoins here, as he has throughout, turning first to the position that is under authority and explaining what submission requires. 
the Lord here, through the apostle, also turns to the one in authority. Wives, submit to your husbands. Now, husbands, love your wives. And actually spends considerable time. Does that with children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. And now you, you fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath. And so he turns to masters. What does the Lord require of a master? And here, interestingly, he puts it this way. Do the same things unto them. Now think about what that means. What the apostle is saying is that the master is also a servant. Why, does this sound familiar? It should, because that's basically what the apostle told the husbands. Wives, submit to your husbands. And he turns to the husbands and he explains what loving your wife is all about. And then he uses Christ as the example. And it's clear from the example that husbands, you're in the position of authority, but now you're a servant. You serve your wife. That's how you love her. He's going to do the same thing to fathers. When he says provoke not your children to wrath, it means serve them. Oh yes, your father. Oh, you're, you're master of your home. But now you serve them. He does the same thing with masters. Do the same things unto them. That is, serve them. Now, he puts a little meat on that. If you look at the same things and you ask, well, what are those same things? He says so in verse 8 what it is when he says to the servants, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same he shall receive of the Lord. So what he's saying is, slaves, what you do to your master is a good thing. And the Lord sees everything you do in the service of your master as a good thing. And now, masters, you do those same good things to your slave. And that's what he means when he goes on in verse 6 to say then that even as a slave, when he does that, is serving Christ and doing the will of God from the heart and doing service with good will, so also the master. And you say, well, how would the Master do that? Well, the Lord would have in mind, the Apostle would have in mind, providing for them, caring for them, caring for their soul, caring for their body physically, providing food, providing clothing, providing shelter, providing medicinal care for the slave. Perhaps even giving to the slave opportunity to have a family, his own family. Perhaps even giving him some of his own personal time Maybe even urging him to attend church with him, to care for his soul. But the idea is do good by seeking the good of the slave. Oh yes, he's a slave. Oh yes, he is not his own master. And yet, doing good. What is good? And that is which is for his well-being, body and soul. The implication, of course, is that's also what God requires of an employer. If you ask, what would God today require of an employer? It would be the same thing. Do the same good things. What do you require of them? Good things. To labor good. To labor hard. To labor and give their time. And now you pay. You pay well for that time. You provide financially. You look after the well-being and welfare of your employees. You have concern about them. Perhaps even concern for their spiritual well-being. That is what he lays upon employers. 
He says a little bit more. And forbear threatenings. Forbearing threatenings. Now, what is that? The threatenings there means to threaten bodily, physical harm for failures, or perhaps even as a means to exercise control. If you don't do this, I'm going to beat you. If you even think about leaving, I will whip you. Or perhaps even doing it in order to exercise control. The Apostle, what he means by this is don't use your position. Don't use your authority to rule in a harsh, brutal, tyrannical manner as an employer. Don't run the place as a brute and a tyrant and a bully today, we would say, abuse your position as an employer. Rather, be kind, be gracious, be loving, be caring. Don't threaten, don't harm, don't punish over petty offenses just to show who's the boss. Now, the Apostle having said that gives a reason for all this and that reason we may summarize simply as, well, you're serving Christ. You're serving Christ. Now he's going to break that down into small pieces, but that's what we have to see. That what he has to say here to the masters and what he has to say here to the slaves, to the employees and the employers basically is, do you realize that when you do this, you're serving Christ? And, and I understand the passage is also saying, do this as you serve Christ. But when he does that, what he's saying is, this is how you serve Christ. This is what the service of Christ looks like. Don't imagine that you only serve Christ when you come to church, when you're sitting here on a Sunday. No, you serve Christ every day of your life, and especially in this place called the workplace. Now, he looks at the slave, he looks at the employee, and he tells them that they ought to obey basically their masters willingly and cheerfully and rightly as they would Christ. So, you look at the reason, and what he's really saying is, look first at your relationship to Christ and how you serve Him, and now behave that way. And you, you, you got to say, no, well, why is that? Because, okay, just notice, will you please, how the Apostle, again, when dealing with our life, when we're dealing with what we call practical matters, with godly living, doesn't matter where it is, the apostle always appeals to Christ. That's what we call the doctrine according to godliness. When he got to husbands, he didn't just, wives, he didn't just say submit, husbands love, but submit as the church does to Christ, and love as Christ does his church. It's basically going to tell parents and children, and that's what he does here. Why does he do that? Why does he appeal to that? Because he knows the temptation. He knows the temptation of employees or slaves to rebel. He knows the temptation of masters or employers to abuse their position and harm their workers and harm their slaves, to treat them unfairly and uncaringly. And he's saying, that's not Christian. That's not godly. That's not how you live in your relationship to Christ. It's ungodly. It's unchristian if we can only get that through our head. 
That's the principle that we have to understand here. Noteworthy is that truth. Our relationship to Christ drives everything. It determines everything. Everything flows from that. You cannot separate doctrine and practice. You cannot separate your relationship to Christ from any other relationship and just isolate it. If you ask why that is, there's a lot of answers you could give, but one you can give is simply this. Because ultimately there's only one authority. There's only one who is your master. There's only one who is your Lord. It's Christ, your master in heaven. We are all slaves to Him. He is the Lord. And it really doesn't matter what authority there is over you, and no matter where it is, that's Christ's authority. That's what we need to remember. That's what we always forget, especially when that authority has us do something that's against or opposed to our flesh. What's the temptation? And the answer is the flesh. The flesh doesn't want authority over us. The flesh doesn't want anyone telling us what to do. The flesh says, I may do this. This is right. And consider now the greatness of that temptation. Think of all the excuses that we would give to rebel against our employer. And then say, do any of those apply to a slave? And the answer is, of course not. You're bellyaching, complaining, and rebelling against your employee because you don't think he's giving you a living wage. Well, at least you're getting a wage. Slave didn't even get a wage. You can quit your job. Slave got killed or sold. You got docks and pay. Slave got whipped. You see, in, when we don't want to recognize authority wherever it is, it's always because something is done that hurts our flesh, that, that bothers us. We often might want to put a good spin on it, put some sort of Christian morality attached to it, give it some sort of right. I have the right to do this. I have the right because I've been harmed. I've been hurt. This has happened to me. God doesn't want me to hurt. God doesn't want me to suffer. But that's not true. The Apostle says there's one authority in life, and if there's authority over you, you must see that authority as the authority of Christ. Not only that, but the second reason for all this is because ultimately all right behavior is derived from God, comes from God. He's the standard. He's the ultimate master over us as slaves. He has the right to tell us what to do, even if it is harmful, even if it is hurtful to our flesh, even if it is something that may cause us to wince or cause us some pain. God is our Master. He is our Lord. It's amazing how often Scripture does that and relates godly behavior, therefore, to the subject of submission. Notice that, will you please? What a grand and glorious book on the church we've been considering. And we get to the practical session, and the, the, the apostle has a few things to say, but almost everything up until now has been submit. Submit. Why is that? Well, as I said, number one, all authority is God's. There's only one authority over us, basically Christ. And secondly, he's the standard of what it is to behave, what it is to honor authority. And now look at Christ. Who is Christ? What is He? The ultimate master, 
the ultimate Lord, King of kings and Lord of lords. And what did he do? Worked as a servant, came as a servant. Then come along and say, what? What? Come down and give my life for those people? Those rebels? Those people who don't listen, won't submit? Why should I do that? What's in it for me? Nope. The one who is our master is also our servant. You have to combine all these things together and see that's what the apostle is getting at as the reason why to do what we do. He's saying you cannot look at your master without seeing Christ. Or you shouldn't be able to look at Christ without seeing your master. You shouldn't be able to consider your behavior in the workplace without considering your behavior before your Lord and your Christ. And all of that is emphasized here. Notice, servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling. Why fear and trembling? Because that's how we serve our master, our Lord Jesus Christ. So he adds that, in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Do you serve Christ? And how do you serve Christ? Well, we would say we, we serve Him with singleness of heart. In the Christian life, in my service of Jesus Christ, there's no place for other masters. I mean, have two masters. I mean, even serve Christ and mammon. I mean, serve money. I mean, serve other lords the way I do Christ. Even, even my service to my master in an earthly sense is subservient to my one Single-minded service to Jesus Christ. And now Jesus says, now act that same way toward your earthly masters. Even to the point where He, he says, don't, don't, don't act as a servant or slave would, as eye service or men-pleasers. Don't even do that. Don't even say, now this is what I'm going to do for my earthly master because I want to please him. I want to make him happy. He says, no, 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 no. Go higher than that. Say, I want to do that for my earthly master so that I can serve my Lord. I want to please my Lord. I want to consider what he sees and what he knows. Doing the will of God from the heart. You see, it's possible to serve an earthly master without your heart being into it at all without even having eye service or being a man-pleaser, just simply doing it because you're told. But again, that's not how we serve Christ. We serve Him from the heart, willingly, with goodwill doing service. Again, notice, as to the Lord. With goodwill. That is, doing it with cheer. Doing it with a certain joy. Doing it because you want to do it because you consider it good. And notice again, not now for the earthly master, but as to the Lord. And not even to men. Is that, is that the way men, we, we go to our work? Understand this is what this is all about. Do you, do you go to work that way? Anyone who works here? Anyone who is an employee? You go to work saying, I'm going to serve God today. I'm going to serve Christ today. Let's be more clear. And that when I punch that clock, and I do what's on my job description, and I carry out my duties, I literally look at my employer as Christ. And I say, I'm serving Christ today. 
I'm putting my heart and my soul into my labor, whether it's fixing the car engine, or plowing a field, or typing code into a computer. I am serving Christ. And the Apostle's basically saying that if that's not the reason you do what you do, you're going to be in trouble. You're going to rebel at some point. You're not going to be serving Christ, really. You're going to be serving yourself. And that's kind of the point here. How, how is it that Christians can support labor unions in the rebellion? How is it that Christians can rise up against their employers? How, how is it that Christians can flat out rebel against lawful authority in their life? You say, how, how did you get there? And the answer is because they quit serving Christ. They don't go to work. They don't labor in their home. They don't conduct themselves in marriage as serving Christ. They're serving themselves. And when you serve yourself, guess what? You can't have a master. Man will not have a master. Sooner or later, in one way or another, he will rebel. And the only way for the master to keep him is with force, authority, which is why masters are often so brutal. Notice, willingly, cheerfully, and rightly apply not only now to what Jesus says is the way and the manner in which you serve your masters, but he's saying that is your service of Christ. That's how you serve Christ. Now, with regard to masters, he has something to say again. And as you would expect, he appeals again to the lordship of Christ. He refers to your master in heaven. Now, masters, when you consider your employees, you masters, when you consider your slaves, remember your master in heaven. And he appeals to that fact. He's saying, you earthly masters, you earthly Christian masters, have a heavenly master. And he mentions that because he expects the relationship of the earthly master to his heavenly master to govern his earthly relationship as a master. What do you mean? Well, we mean this whether it's as a master over a slave or an employer over an employee, when he's setting salaries and when he's determining benefits and when he's given job descriptions and jobs to do, he first sits down and he considers not now the bottom line. He doesn't say now, what can I afford? What's in it for me? How can I do this to, A, keep my employer and yet maximize profits? Those are all what men do. And that's a temptation for earthly Christian masters too. I'm going to pay this because this is the going wage. I'm going to pay this because this is competitive. That's not what the apostle brings up, is right treatment, kind treatment. Do good things. It's consider your heavenly master. So let's look at our heavenly master. How does your heavenly master deal with you? And the answer is not as a slave. Oh, you're a slave. You serve him, but you're his friend. You're not just the slave of Jesus Christ. You are his friend. You are his brother. You are part of his family. And he treats you that way. That's the amazing thing of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And that governs everything that he does. He doesn't just provide for your needs as a slave. He provides your needs as a family member. He lavishes you with things. We pray for our daily bread, but He gives us way, 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 way more than that. He doesn't threaten us. 
He's gentle. He's kind. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's patient. He's forbearing. No Christian employer who is not these things may claim to be a Christian. Christian employers are governed by their relationship to their heavenly master. And they have to reflect him in all they do. Also, he brings up the fact that God is no respecter of persons with him. What's the point here? The point is that Jesus never deals with anyone based on their earthly station or position. He doesn't do that. He neither condemns nor justifies based on who you are and what you are. He's fair and just in his dealings with men. He condemns that which is evil, whether you're a master or slave. He doesn't care. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be the President of the United States. You can be King of the whole world. Evil is evil, and He punishes it as evil. And He justifies that which is right. He blesses that which is good. And so that's related to the promise He makes. I'm going to be brief here for time's sake, but there's several principles implied. Some of them we've touched on, and they're implied when the Apostle speaks of obeying with fear and trembling, and that there's no respect of persons with with God. And what are those things? Well, number one is spiritual equality does not imply physical earthly equality. Hope we understand that. In Jesus Christ, we're all spiritual equals. There's no male and female, no master and slave in the economy of the kingdom of heaven with regard to Jesus Christ. But that doesn't imply physical equality. That doesn't mean now there's no headship, no places of authority, no submission required in the family, in the marriage, or even in the workplace. That's always the argument. But that's not true. And that's brought out here in the passage. Also this, you can see that conduct and doctrine are inseparable. Doctrine governs behavior and behavior influences doctrine. You cannot separate them. You cannot say, well, this doctrine here, this is the gospel, and these other things are, well, take it or leave it. These are suggestions. These are good things to do, but it's not really that important. Certainly not necessary. Oh, no, 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 no. Get your doctrine wrong, and your behavior will be wrong. Or if your teaching on conduct is wrong, your doctrine will soon be wrong too. That's what you see here in this passage. But there's promises implied here. There's promises implied here. Not really even implied, but they're actually stated when it says that knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. Why is that? Again, because God is no respecter of persons. And notice there in verse 8, he's talking to the slaves. And what's his point? Well, his point is this. There's a promise here. And the promise, again, is based on who our Lord is. And his promise is, he rewards what's good. And he's talking to a slave who may be beaten by his master, a master who's a brute and a tyrant, one who is actually a despot, and not a Christian master. Maybe even dealing with a Christian master who's abusing his authority. But he's saying to that slave, you do good. You do what you're supposed to do. You serve that man. You labor, you diligent, labor diligently, willingly, single-mindedly, and the Lord will reward that good. He gives good upon good. That's what he's saying here. The Lord will remember. And he doesn't matter now whether you're slave or master. Doesn't 
matter. The Lord sees. He watches. And that's what he's applying to with regard to the employer when he says, remember, God is no respecter of persons. Now that's of grace. The Lord rewards that which is good. Let's just back up a little bit. What's being taught here about our Lord? Number one is, what does it mean that He's Lord? And the answer is, number one, that He's Lord is implies He gives us strength and power to live as He calls us to live. The whole idea of this passage is that now this is what I call you to do. This is what I give you to do. I, your Master in heaven. But I'm not going to give you the tools. I'm not going to give you the strength and power to actually do it. I'm going to withhold that. Is that the truth? Is that the Gospel? No. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord over sin. He's Lord over death. He's conquered these things. And so when He comes along and says, you live this way, implied in that is He gives you the strength and power to do it. That's exactly what it means that He is Lord and Master over us. That we belong to Him and not the devil any longer. But notice also, He rewards us as His slaves. And it's a reward of grace exactly because we're slaves. Read the Belgian Confession, Article 24. There it rules out that our good works are that which are the basis for our justification. In other words, our good works don't enter into it when God declares us righteous. And yet, He rewards them. He rewards them. And it reminds us that that reward is grace. And what's behind that? And the answer is because we're slaves. Slaves can't earn anything. Slaves can't can't merit. Slaves can't get a paycheck. But that doesn't mean they're given things. That doesn't mean they're even rewarded by their master. Not rewarded by their master. They are. They can be. But it would be grace. And that's the idea here too. Go live this way. Live according to the Christians you are. Live as Christ is your master. Serve Him. Follow Him. How do I do that? By carrying this out and doing this. And remember, when it's hard and when there's struggles and all these things, the Lord sees that which is good. He sees your plight. He sees when you're mistreated. And He'll remember that. And He will take care of you. He will do good to you. He will provide you what you need in His grace as your master. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, our God and Father in heaven, we thank Thee for Thy Word and the truth of Thy Word. We are thankful that that Word continues to be true in our own day, for it fails not. Give us grace to so live in the workplace ourselves, to serve Thee as we serve our earthly masters, and to serve Thee as earthly masters when we take care of our employees. We pray these things, O Lord, so that Thy name may be glorified and lifted up, for this is all according to the power of Thy grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.